0: You're listening to a DM podcast. Hi, I'm Nigel Marsh, and this is the Five of My Life podcast, the show where five choices reveal sideways insights into the lives, opinions and lessons of interesting people. Eddie Jones is one of the highest profile rugby coaches the world game has ever seen with controversial stints coaching the English, Australian and Japanese national sides. This episode was recorded the day after it was announced he was returning to coach Japan for the second time and reveals a fascinating insight into the man behind the headlines. So, Eddie, welcome to Five My Life.
1: Yeah, nice to, nice to be here, Nigel. Pleasure.
0: I have been a rugby nut for over 50 years, and this isn't a rugby show, uh, but I have had the captain of the Wallabies on, John Eels, and I've had Stuart Dickinson on, the most capped uh, Australian rugby international referee. And now I've, I've completed the trifecta, mate, because I've got the coach on. So it's just wonderful to have you on and to see how you're going to respond to the five of my life challenge and we always start with the film and you have chosen the film that is commonly regarded as the if not the one of the very best animation films ever made spirited away 2001 a describe the film quickly b why you like it and c why you've chosen it
1: well it's that animation about uh about life really about humans' interaction with the environment and just the the clever way they've done it, setting it up in a, a city called Tenri in Japan where all the buildings are the same. Uh, you know, it's a, quite a strong religious sect and it starts by the family walking in. You know, the parents get greedy and they turn into pigs um, and then the, the child then goes into the castle and has a series of adventures that, you know, relates to... The underlying theme about how we've got to look after the environment, you know, and, and I remember going there with my daughter, who was I think ten at that stage, and thinking, yeah, this is going to be this is going to be hard work, um, and thoroughly enjoyed, and watched about two or three times since.
0: I love it, and and, and what is your what is your film going uh, regime? Do you watch lots? Uh,
1: well, the only time I watch them is on on the plane, mate. So. Whenever I'm on a plane, I try to get two or three in, usually get through one fully and then the other two, you know, get part bits and pieces before I fall asleep.
0: Um, your religious journey, would you mind um, telling us about that a little bit? Uh, how, how was your upbringing? Where have you landed now?
1: Yeah, probably, you know, we were a fairly non-religious household, um, you know, Presbyterian or Methodist. Yeah, in the primary school, you had to do religion on Friday morning. I uh, wasn't the greatest student, but you know, probably in, in, when I was 10 years ago, I had a stroke, um, uh, quite a serious one, and uh, I, a friend of mine was, was reasonably religious, gave me a couple of books to read while I was rehabbing, and and post the stroke, I, I, I was in Takeo at the time, I went to a, a non-denominational church right in the middle of takeout that was very multinational we had a South African uh, guy in charge and, and I enjoyed that I went there every Sunday and, and probably you know, helped me on the next next bit of my life after the stroke um, trying to understand why it happened and then you know what can I do with the rest of my life
0: that's wonderful and, and have you kept that up
1: when i went back to england or well, when i went to england i didn't and i've only just got back to japan and my wife and i were just discussing it the other day whether we go back or not i'd be inclined to go back but we'll wait and see
0: so so for me i, I mean full disclosure i you know 100 years ago i studied theology at, at college so right. that, that's my degree but i sort of think there's a irrespective of what one believes, it's quite nice to have a ritual where you get together. I mean, it's what sport does in a way, where you get together communally and do something together that's peaceful. You know, sing songs, you know, listen to a bloke giving a sermon. I, so so I, I don't go to church uh, a, anymore, but I sort, of, I sort of wish I did. Yeah, I
1: think that, the, that idea of, you know, having a ritual where, you know, you spend some quiet time with other people, I think is is, uh, yeah, very important, mate.
0: Now, also in, in the film, that the, the poor old parents get turned into chuggy pigs. Um, um, would you mind talking a little bit about your folks?
1: Uh, yeah, well, um, my father was in the army. He, he uh, went to a number of wars and ended up in, you know, the, the story of, or the start of, of how it all happened. Then he went to Japan as part of the occupation force. And my mother, who's an Nisei, which meant that her family post-World War I went to America and were farmers, and then when World War II broke out, they were all put into occupation camps. Yeah. So she lived, you know, most of her, or well, four or five years of her high school life in an occupation camp in California. Um, then post the war, they, the family went back to Japan, and because my mother was bilingual, she was working as a interpreter in the occupation force and that's how my father and mother met. And then they got married and went back to, to Australia. And my mother, I think, was one of the first Japanese to go back to Australia. And she tells a great story about when she was... Because they went first to Hobart and they, she went out shopping in Hobart and, you know, people in Hobart had never seen a Japanese before so she was like the leading the Pied Pipers, and, and, you know, they all thought she couldn't speak English, oh. and then she got to the shop and started speaking English, and they are all aghast that she could, you know, <laughs> speak English. So, um, she, you yeah, know, she's still alive. She's 98 in Sydney, um, still doing remarkably well. Oh, very God. tough lady.
0: God, love her. That's fantastic. And, and then, gosh that experience did she harbor resentment towards our dear american friends or was that just part of life and you move on or did that scar her
1: i think that's one of the things she's taught me that never never hold anything against anyone because you know she had that experience and then i remember when my father went and went to vietnam or so she was at home looking after three kids and the rsl was supposed to come and cut the grass so they came and knocked on the door and and she opens the door and the, and the bloke says, well, we're not cutting your grass. Um,
0: oh, and what, because remember, she's, oh dear, okay.
1: she's Japanese? And I remember she turned to me and she said, oh, well, we're going to have to do it ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, so definitely helped me my coaching that, you know, you obviously get a, a fair amount of critics here and there, so I don't tend to worry about it too much.
0: So uh, I, when I was 16, was locked up in boarding school, and in 1981 I uh, climbed over the wall, which you were not allowed to do, you were locked up for 14 weeks at a time, and um, let's say borrowed with air bunnies, stole a bicycle, I did return it afterwards, and I cycled for 11 miles to Oxford to watch the Wallabies play Oxford University, and beat them 19-12, but forget that, it was the Ella Brothers... Holy moly. So I'm yeah. in the rain yeah. cycling. I'm probably going to get expelled yeah. from school and arrested by the police. But it was <laughs> unbelievably ele- one of the just wow. I was there, mate. 19. 19- I mean, the Wallabies obviously won. 19. 19- yeah. um, but you are mates with the best rugby players that have ever bestrode this planet. And what, what was that like being at school? did you know then that you were in the presence of greatness or was it just <laughs> just just classmates?
1: I remember going to kindergarten We were, it was all started in kindergarten together, and there you were know, these three aboriginal boys and and then mate no one really worried whether you're black or white. There wasn't any real discernment, but no one knew um, and then we started playing sport and you knew who they were then um, you know every cricket team we played in we won. Every rugby league, we we're playing rugby league there. Game we won, and they were just remarkable. And the most polite boys, you know, always had a handkerchief in their pockets. You know, they lived in a house of fourteen kids, you know, three-bedroom house, fourteen kids on the on the Aboriginal uh, settlement. But they were always, you know, immaculate in the way they presented themselves. And it's remarkable what they did in sport, you know, it really is.
0: I, I think they. I mean, I mean, I'm just a, an amateur. Fan rather than an expert or anything, but I think they sort of transformed the game globally. They they changed how I mean when I was you know watching rugby. I mean, God alive, the the England team you know kicking the leather off the ball, and then I mean that's why I that's why I'd cycle to see them. They go these these guys are playing a different a different game. It was you know and everyone everyone had to catch up. Just fantastic.
1: Yeah, they make catch and pass fashionable, mate.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Your second choice uh, on five, it's always the book. And I'm so glad you chose this because I, I, I'd never heard of it. Uh, and obviously, I, I read all the books that my guests uh, choose. You've chosen uh, The Courage to be Disliked by Kashimi and Koga. Uh, I mean, if I call it self-help, I think that's that's sort of derogatory. It's more than self-help. Published in 2013 uh, in, in the original language, 2017 in English. Uh, would you mind explaining, uh, briefly explaining what it is and then why you've chosen it?
1: Yeah, well, it's written as a, as a, as a story. And I think, you know, the way the guy's written it is, is very clever. And, again, it's all about, you know, just owning yourself, owning your career, you know, not worrying too much about what other people say, not, not worrying what your childhood was like. Don't let your childhood dictate what the rest of your life is and, you know, and, and basically finding yourself and be strong in yourself.
0: Yes, so there were three, uh, the three sort of granddaddies of psychology: Freud, Jung, and Adler. And it, it, it's based on Alfred Adler, uh, and and the the, the the structure of the book is like a so- Socratic conversation between a student and the and the master. Yeah. I just adored reading it, and the themes, absolutely, uh, as you described. And the one thing in it that really hit me like a truck was there's lots of effort in psychology, for Freud and Jung, in in working out why you are like how you are. So so I was sent to boarding school at the age of five in another country or whatever, so that's <coughs> why I, I don't know, talk too much or I scratch my neck or whatever it might be, right? So you put all this effort into working out, you know, your mother never hugged you or whatever it was or, or, or you, you know, you had some trauma. That can explain why you are how you are. Whereas in this book, just incredible, you go, well, yeah, let's not spend too much time on that. How about let's concentrate on what you would like to be. You, you have choice. Yeah. I think it's terribly titled. The, the, the Courage to be disliked I think it, it's a really off-putting title because that is not the main theme of the book. It's about courage and self-acceptance and authenticity and deciding what you want to do and doing it and not not allowing a true explanation of why you might be like you are be an excuse for never changing. Or you can say, well, sod it, I've always got a choice in every moment to decide what I want to do with my life.
1: And I think, you know, it really ties in with, you know, people talk, use the word now, agency, you've got to have agency in your life, you know, look after yourself. And that's what it's about, mate. It's almost like it should be called courage to like yourself.
0: Yeah, yeah, self-acceptance. And that not meaning uh having tickets on yourself but you know we're only here no. once there's a quote uh, towards the end that i wrote down which is to shine a spotlight on here and now and go about doing what one can do now earnestly and conscientiously and you go that's that's fair enough i'll buy that you know try and make a contribution do your best you can and don't worry about it yeah. too much.
1: yeah yeah i think the, the other part is really about just living in the moment you know Enjoying every moment. What can you get out of what can you get out of this moment at, at this time? And then take it forward rather than, you know, worrying about what's been in the past or worry about what's in the future. You know, just, just get on with it. And I think the reason it resonated with me a lot was that particularly, you know, coaching young players and, and you just talk to sc- you know, a couple of my mates are still still school teachers and they talk about the high level of the anxiety young people have today and you know in in sportsmen particularly that's exacerbated by social media so you know as a as a coach it was another way of 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 getting a different message about like how how can you be the best version of yourself how can you own your own career
0: yeah 100 percent um i'm going to come on and ask you about your teaching experience later on Uh, but I, i want to do one fan thing where for me in my life possibly the Pinnacle of sporting excitement was when Mr. Guscott dropped the drop goal in the '97 uh, Lions tour against South Africa. To right. this day, I mean, I, holy moly! Um, wh- wh- what is what is yours as a fan, and and it needn't be rugby. It can, it, but but the the moment if you had to pick one where where the champagne was was uncorked. Oh, it
1: was probably more about changing of the guards for me. It was. Oh, I'm a massive cricket fan. Right. And I remember being a young kid. It was, it was a seventy seventy one 71 uh, series, and Australia was getting absolutely builded by England. Um, <laughs> Bill Lorry, who was the captain, was a a really dour, like a very old-fashioned captain. And Ian Chappell came in. I remember I was lucky enough to be the first day of his test in Sydney, and he, he came in, he had his shirt undone to his... Yeah, you know, his nipples, he, he had a big handlebar moustache and you could just see an instant change in the in the, the way the team was operating. You know, it was like, we were, gonna, we're now gonna take it to you. If we're good enough, we'll win. If we're not good enough, we won't. And for me, that almost was the moment that, as a player, I wanted to play like that. And as a coach, I always want my teams to play like that. So it just stands out to me.
0: Oh, wonderful. We're going to go to your third choice, and every song that's chosen by my guest and we've had three prime ministers, and and the Wallabies coach, and the chief rabbi, and a whole host of different people, um, gets put on a fibre life Spotify playlist. So there is a sensational for your next international flight, mate. You've got you know your 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 song is different from Julia Gillard's, is different to Kevin Rudd's. It's it's wonderful. But you have chosen the fourth single from Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA 1984 album. I'm on fire. At night I wake up with the sheets and wet and a freight
1: train running through the middle of my head on you. And cool my Ooh, I'm Tell us about that. Uh well, it always resonated with me, like in bad coaching periods where there's almost like a freight train running through the middle of your head. You know and have I've always been a big Bruce Springsteen fan, but I've never been one that can remember lyrics very well, but for some reason that one sticks in, in my head all the time. And I go back and I listen to it and I, I just really enjoy the song.
0: And, and so so you you listen to it where you're having tough times or where you're having uh, successful times? Uh,
1: right? both. both. Both? Both.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah.
1: Like he stood the test of time. You know, his, his last album, uh, what was it called? The Letter, some fantastic songs on that. Um, And it's incredible. You know, he started off as a skinny little bloke. He wasn't strong enough to play two hours on the guitar and just build himself up. And you look at him now in his 70s, and he still looks, you know, as ripped as ever, can still, you know, bang out a a decent concert and just kept
0: going. And have you seen him live?
1: Uh, I've seen him a couple of times live, mate, yeah, in Sydney. He's good, isn't he? Yeah, no, unbelievable, mate. (laughs)
0: Um, Now, um, I I should have asked when you mentioned her, Earlier, taking her to Spirited Way is your daughter Chelsea. Yeah, she London-based. Sydney, where, where, where is she? Uh,
1: she's in she's in Tokyo now. So oh, she's, okay, right. uh, she's like 75 percent Japanese, twenty-five percent Australian. When she was a kid growing up, she had little affiliation with Japan. It's, it's, it's so interesting that she did uni in England and then went back to Australia and worked for three or four years, and now moved to Japan and loves it.
0: Fantastic. Uh, And um, tell me, if you don't mind, if you don't say anything you don't want to say, uh, how how did you meet uh, Mrs. Jones?
1: Uh, We were teaching at the same school. I was at International Grammar School. I was eventually became the acting principal and I I was leaving. I was going to actually play my last season of rugby at Leicester Tigers. And my wife, who had the same school for 10 years, but never had anything to do with each other, was going back to Japan. Um, so they put on a farewell party for both of us and we started talking. And then three months later, uh, Heroku came over to Leicester Tigers with you spent six months together and then got married.
0: Oh, I love it. Anyway, Did you get married in England? Or, or No, no, I got married in Sydney. Lovely. Okay, now your fourth choice, it's always the place, and I'm in Barrett. I mean, I've been Google earthing it in, in on satellite and on maps, but I, I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong. So I do apologise. Sugar Daira in japan is that how do you pronounce it is that right
1: not bad mate
0: it's
1: a good yeah
0: Sagudara, okay cool and uh, um, tell us about that why have you chosen that
1: yeah it was in the mountains in nagano just north of Taiko, and um it used to be the hotbed of rugby in, in japan um so in august every university and high school team would go there and you'd go and you it used to have i can't remember the exact that number but was something like 44 rugby fields up there and you'd walk around two o'clock in the afternoon there'd be games everywhere and it was it was back then rugby in japan was crazy like you'd take a university or my first experience in japan ta- taking tokai university there you'd play every third day and and you would train twice a day you had two meals a day it was like being in a military prison but they just this love of rugby and the high school kids play rugby every day uh it's a little bit more sensible now but it's just this beautiful isolated spot and we um when I took over Japan the last time we we took them up there and and there's a this waterfall in our s c case, john pryor is um yeah a little bit different took the players under the waterfall for a bit of a a spiritual experience. A couple of them got cut feet on the rocks. <laughs> it wasn't too spiritual for those two guys.
0: <laughs> would you mind uh, briefly telling me uh, a little bit about where you feel uh, Japan is in 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 the rankings? Where where would you uh, you know honestly put them? Uh, you know as in a number and and where do you reasonably think you're you're coming down here which is gonna be fantastic where do you reasonably think they're gonna be by the time they they land for the world cup the next world cup
1: well you know the objective figure is 12th yeah they've been as high as ninth Um, and over the last four years there's probably been a little bit of a plateau for them so the task is to regenerate uh, the team so they can challenge for the top eight. I think we've seen in, in rugby an evening out of the, particularly the top six and now there's, there's a bit of an opportunity for teams just outside the eight to push in. So the next four years are going to be all about that, mate. God, how exciting. Are, are, are you pumped? Yeah, no, no, really looking forward because it's almost like, for me, closing the circle on my career. I started here, um, you know, it's probably – last one of the last major jobs i'll do so i close the career i'd like to leave some some sort of legacy for japanese rugby
0: why not there is there is no reason why they couldn't come down and surprise everyone well hopefully not surprised and do a number in in three and a half years time Yeah. Yeah. Your fifth choice—it's always the possession, and it's often my favourite of the choices because people get personal. They don't usually choose their Ferrari or their plane. Uh, in, in your case, you have chosen a samurai sword. How many have you got, mate? Describe the one you've chosen and tell us why you've chosen it.
1: <laughs> I've only got one, um, and in fact, I've given it away. Oh, uh, right. But I, we're in the World Cup for 2019 with England, and uh, we were playing New Zealand in the semi-final. And I thought I wanted to do something a little bit different for the, the lead-up in the game. You know, we had the chat with Owen about, about the V, so that was one thing. But I wanted to, to really make the point to the team, be a bit theatrical about it. So I thought I got the interpreter to go and buy a, a samurai sword in, in Miyazaki. And there was this tiny little shop as only one person could fit in the shop. That's how small it was. So, she either the interpreter went in or I went in, and she went in and got it. Yeah, it was reasonably expensive. Yeah, had all the paperwork. Yeah, hundred years old, proper samurai sword. So the the night I got it, I practiced cutting up uh, kiwi fruit. (laughs) (laughs) Right, and then the team meeting on the Wednesday before we were playing on the Saturday, got kiwi fruit up there and chopped it up and, you know, just a bit of theatre about this is what we're going to do to New Zealand. Oh, I love it. Um, So, and I couldn't bring it back into England because it's obviously uh, a weapon. Um, So I left it in Japan and I've given it away to someone.
0: Now, tell us who, who'd you give it to? No, I gave it to the interpreter. (laughs) That's fantastic. i mean I, I mean i watch those fly on the wall behind the scenes you, you know sporting videos because i like yeah. living with the lions blah 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 in, in the back of your mind when you're doing something like that are you thinking oh god this could fall flat and the you know the props will throw a banana at me or or are you, are you, you just you just don't care you just go for it
1: yeah well there's always that risk mate and i think yeah you know, getting back to that book you know Courage to be this like you just gotta you just gotta give it a go. And if it fails, it fails. It's just an experience. Who was it that said it? Uh, Nadal said, you know, winning and losing, they're just they're just they're just parts of a journey. You know, they, they don't define what you're doing, they're just parts of the journey. And I think again, if you look at it like that, you know, some of those things go well and some of them are absolute failure.
0: Well, it clearly worked, mate, because that was one of the oh my lord, that was one of the most amazing games. (laughs) I tell you what, I mean, apologies to my listeners who aren't rugby nuts, but it is the thing that was amazing for the Marsh family watching that game is England didn't just beat New Zealand, they thumped them. You know, I've watched. You know, for 55 years, the guy, I know every single time England yeah. has beaten New Zealand. And sometime, the, the one with Tua laggy. that was another time we thumped them. But, but yeah. usually we, we, we limp over the line. But if you were a neutral yeah. watching that semi-final, the best team won. Yeah. yeah. Just fantastic. And do you keep in touch with... Players. So when we go back to the Ellers, but do you keep in touch with the Owen Farrells and the whatevers of this world, or as a coach, you know, when you move on, you move on, like like moving jobs, or, or how, how does that work?
1: Yeah, no, there's, there's players you always always keep in touch with, like yeah, the Ellers. Uh, Glenn Ellers, probably one of my best mates. So I see him regularly when I was in Australia. Yeah, I get on World with Mark. Still get on World with Mark and Gary, and I I try to catch up with them. And then you have got. You know, you got two or three players from each generation. You'll you'll generally see, you know, uh, Griezmann and Kafer from the Brumbies period. So you see those players. Owen, you know, he's obviously had a bit of a tough time lately. We had a bit of a text with each other the other day. Um, yeah. So yeah, you, t- you keep in- you can't keep in contact with everyone, but keep in contact with a few.
0: Yeah, and and what has been your? Uh, I mean, obviously. The 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 one coming up is going to be the best, and it's going to be a glorious end to your career. But what has been pre that? What has been your favourite gig?
1: Probably you know the Brumbies. I had four. Yeah, you know, I was a young coach coming up. I had four years there. We were the first Australian side to win Super Rugby, and and we played a style of rugby that was really distinctive and a style of rugby that that everyone owned. It wasn't it wasn't me driving. It was. There's a great collaboration between the senior players. We had a lot of really smart guys a- and the coaches. And we were a little out of Little Canberra, 300,000 people you know, batting above ourselves. And we were, we were getting packed stadiums. And, you know, to win the Super Rugby as the first Australian side was quite an achievement.
0: Oh, know, wonderful. So I- I've been in the country since 2001. You know, I, I couldn't. You know, go and watch English Premiership because I'm, I'm now living in Sydney. So I would go to the Waratahs and I'd take my two sons and we would have 34,000, 35,000 people uh, playing, you know, Matt Burke, Matt Rogers, whatever, you, you know, yeah, some, yeah. some amazing nights with mates and family watching yeah. that. And I've stopped going you know, and you go, yeah. if, if I've stopped going, I don't know who's going, but the, but the last time I went, it was in the SFS, and and, and I say this with love and affection, because I, I want them to do well, I want the sport to do well, but it was, I mean, my, my, where have the people gone?
1: Well, I think, yeah, rugby at the moment in Australia is going through a bit of a tough period, um, you know, having having experienced it, um, so it's not only super rugby that, that's struggling, it's rugby as a sport, and I think, yeah, whenever you've got this situation, just like we we're talking about, it actually creates an opportunity for something really good to happen, and yeah, I think everyone's hopeful that that there will be change in the system, and part of that may be the Super Rugby needs to change because it's, it doesn't attract people to watch it, and and, and as you know, living in Sydney, you got NRL and you have got AFL, which are going through you know, going gangbusters, so. You need rugby to be a, a, a sport that people want to see and at that domestic level. Yeah, it's got to be entertaining. It's got to be fast. It's got to have some names that you want to see play uh, to bring young kids to the game. I'll well, tell you, the, the most interesting interview I saw in rugby relates to tennis. It was might have been, I can't remember who, it was one of the English uh, yeah, talk shows were interviewing John McEnroe. And at that stage, this was uh, the late 2000s, and uh, American male tennis players hadn't been seen, you know, since McEnroe. And he said, the bloke said to McEnroe, what's happened? He said, well, you know, at the moment all the best athletes go to basketball, they go to baseball, they go to ice hockey, they go to NFL. We don't get the best athletes, and, and tennis has become an athletic game. You know, you've got to be over six foot to be successful, to be, uh successful." So the reason I tell you that because yeah, you know, if you go back to rugby at the moment, rugby's not getting the best athletes. NRL and AFL are, and you need you need that athletic talent to be successful. And people want to watch good athletes
0: play. Do you know I I tell you, you know that the, the legends of the sport that that play 119 tests for their yeah. country, how could, how do they survive? How does a Dan Carter or a Johnny Wilkinson? How do they? not fall to pieces playing a collision sport for for 10 years and they must be just supremely physically lucky or is it conditioning or, or you know, I play a game of rugby and I have, to, I have to lie down for two weeks.
1: Well, a combination of all those things, you know, firstly they've got that real desire to work hard and to be really well prepared. They condition their bodies for, for collisions. They're skilled. They get out of the way when they need to get out of the way.
0: Right. And I need to ask you just, uh, um, my elder son is a rugby referee. Talk to me about referees and how the game is officiated. Any views?
1: The problem is not the referee. The problem we've got is technology. And I say that in a way that we've got to decide whether we want the game to be absolutely precise. And we saw in the final that virtually every decision was was double-checked by the by the TMO to make sure it was correct and as a result we had a stop start game that looked like NFL um, so I think that the referees you know the game's got faster there's more contests there's, there's higher collisions I think they're doing a pretty good job but we've got to decide as a sport whether we want it to be absolutely precise or we're prepared to have some some error as long as the, as long as the referees are supporting and getting the major things right
0: I am so Bloody chuff to hear you say that. The referees are not the issue, and if you if you look at you know the I mean as a pom that the 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 barbarians versus the All Blacks in '63 whatever, there's a wonderful try with Gareth Edwards that that would have been stopped four times by the TMO for for forward passes and obstruction. You go, but. It's about entertainment. And the Lions yeah. Tour in South Africa ruined by causing a fuss about TMOs and whatever else. I think to conceptually all become a line that there are going to be a few mistakes. What you know? What are you after? Are you after a game that is fun to watch and you've got a referee in the middle who's experienced and lets it flow? But, you know, it, it, every ruck there will be 15 infringements if you wanted yeah. to stop and ask. And so, so I'm... I'm, I'm just so pleased to hear you say that. It's not about when people criticise. Yeah. Obviously, there are good referees and bad referees, but but it's not the point. We're looking at the wrong, yeah. the wrong issue. It's not because whoever it is isn't good enough. It's because he's been asked to officiate on everything. Mate, there is uh, a sixth choice on Five My Life. Who would you like to hear on Five My Life next and why?
1: Yeah, well, my favourite sports person of all time, Ian Chappell, as I said, you know, I, I absolutely love it. I love what he did for Australian cricket. And even now, you know, he's obviously in his 80s. I see, you know, little bits and pieces of when he talks. He always talks a lot of sense.
0: Well, that's a brilliant recommendation. And part of the, of the joy of this show is if I called him up and said, I'd like you on Five of My Life, he'll tell me to get nicked. But I'll call <laughs> up and say Eddie Jones wants you on fire, my life. <laughs> and, and he'll still tell me to get to, <laughs> <laughs> Um okay, look, before we wrap up, and this has been brilliant, mate, thank you so much. Your chance with the talking stick to correct any misunderstanding uh that anyone might have about you. Uh
1: look yeah, it's a bit like carries the beast like they don't really care yep. um what people think. Yeah, you know, the only person that's really important is is that I, I can I can be reasonable my whole life. That's I think most people. That's all you're trying to be is reasonable. You know, no one's perfect. No one gets everything right. No one gets everything wrong. You're just trying to be reasonable. And I think, particularly since I've had the stroke, I've lived my life in a in a pretty reasonable state. So I don't really care what what other people think. That's their
0: business. What other people think of me is none of my business. I, I, I love that expression. It's quite inspirational and encouraging in a way to hear you talk about the role that your stroke has had in your life. You know, that cliche about, you know, it's the worst thing that happened to you turned out to be the best thing. Uh, um, I, I lost my job when I was 14. I thought my life was over. It turned out to be the best thing that ever happened yeah. to me. Is I imagine when you were being taken in the ambulance to the hospital, you weren't going, this is brilliant. But, it you know, 10 years later, looking back at it, you, you, you've, yeah. you've talked quite inspiringly about how it's actually helped you come to certain, you know, acceptance with stuff.
1: You get things that happen to you along your life that are potentially really good learning opportunities, but they're only learning opportunities if you actually, if you, if you look at it, reflect, and then make a decision on what you're going to do next, and and so. Yeah, when you've had a stroke, I think it really, it really allows you that opportunity to do that. So, yeah, I wasn't blessed to have it, don't get me wrong, but uh, I think I learned from it. And uh, hopefully, uh, yeah, if I have another one, it probably won't, won't be a, a chance to reflect. I'll probably be in a coffin, mate.
0: <laughs> well, it's not so like, i wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Eddie Jones, thank you so much for coming on to uh, Five My Life and make go well. Good luck with everything and uh, i will watch japan's rise up the rankings with interest
1: thanks mate well nice chat to you and keep doing well on the show and i hope you get chapelli on there mate it'll be good value
0: i'll let you know when i do
1: all right good on you mate send me the episode thanks very much